Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. London, Ontario Mayor Ed Holder has been calling for more local pharmacies to be able to give the COVID-19 test. Dr. Chris Mackey, Medical Officer of Health, will join us to talk about that. The Hamilton 2026 Commonwealth Bid Committee announced a significant result from an economic and social impact study. We'll give you some details. Why are horror movie fans coping with the pandemic better than others? We'll explain that. And the Jays have made the playoffs, first time since 2016. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Testing for COVID-19. We've had an increase in cases over the last little while. Uh, the Premier has responded, of course, earlier this week by actually uh, imposing some restrictions. Uh, not quite as bad as the shutdown, of course, that we had to go through in the springtime. Uh, but he also announced that uh, we had to do something about testing. Well, he came through with that yesterday, uh, suggesting the province is investing a great deal of money to actually increase the amount of tests that are being done. We're investing over $1 billion in expanded testing and contact tracing. That's a billion dollars to support testing, and this investment will make a huge difference. But until we get Health Canada's approval for new rapid tests, rapid testing that other jurisdictions are currently using, the health experts are telling us that we need to be more strategic with testing. So that's good news, of course. Uh, the, the bad news, I suppose, for a lot of people in the province is that uh, just about all of the, uh, the pharmacies that are going to be involved in this are in the GTA or Ottawa area, uh, not Hamilton, not London, not Windsor, and on and on it goes. And I know that uh, London Mayor Ed Holder is uh, um, now trying to get a hold of uh, the Premier and suggest, hey, what about London, too? Uh, joining us to talk about this is Dr. Chris Mackey, of course, is the uh, Medical Officer of Health for uh, the London area. Uh, doctor, thanks so much for the time. I know, uh, busy day for you. I'm glad you could spare a few minutes for us. Thanks for, thanks for having me, Bill. Great idea, and we're all glad to hear that they're going to expand the testing. Uh, are you concerned at all? I mean, we've talked in the last couple of days and weeks, or I guess now, but uh, the uh, rather troubling increases we've seen in the London area right now. Uh, do, you, do you feel that warrants London being one of the sites where some of this testing should be happening? Well, I mean, we have pretty significant lineups at our assessment centers. Uh, people are waiting five or six hours. There are a bunch of strategies in place to try to reduce those wait times, but uh, the, the assessment centers are overwhelmed at the moment. So having some pharmacy capacity on board would be very helpful. Yeah, you had to shut them both down yesterday, didn't you? Both sites, one in, in either end of the city because of, of the lineups and your full capacity very, pretty early in the day, I think. Well, yeah, and yesterday we had the additional problem of some of the lab testing equipment going down. And so uh, that was part of why the shutdown happened uh, yesterday. But, yes, those those assessment centers, you know, within a couple of hours of opening, they generally have had enough people come and get sort of appointments that uh, they aren't able to take uh, more people for the rest of the day. So that's pretty pretty hard for families who, you know, need to get their children tested for uh, school purposes or are trying, you know, I had a physician reach out the other day. He's had to cancel three days worth of his clinics. He's now booking patients into February as a dermatologist friend of mine because he got symptoms and had to get tested and it took him that long to get in to get tested and now the lab capacity is down. So we're getting hit. Those, those assessment centers are getting hit pretty hard right now. I actually, funny that you mentioned that. A family doctor in Hamilton I was talking to earlier this week, same situation. 
uh, had to go and get tested. And of course, the 14 days of isolation, you know, if it's a positive test, uh, which puts, you know, his patients in peril, obviously, and, and they're backlogged. It's, it's frustrating. But you brought something else up to it, doctor, that is not usually part of the conversation, but needs to be. Uh, and that, of course, is where these things get processed. It's one thing to say, okay, the lineups are for the testing is one thing, but once you get tested, that's only the beginning of that process. Somebody has to actually, uh, validate that test and, and make an adju- a judgment of they those people must be overwhelmed because of what's going on yeah and uh, there have been huge investments over the uh, summer months in increasing lab capacity so we can test more people uh, hiring more lab techs uh, getting you know the, the equipment is is big heavy duty you know high volume you're doing 300 tests at a time sort of thing uh, but uh, the the demand now is just overwhelming even what's been built over that time so uh, the premium's announcement yesterday about a billion dollars of more resources there will really help, uh, but if that'll take some time to come online. What are they going to be using? Uh, you know, the, the testing facilities, as you say, I mean, I think a lot of us have certainly seen the, uh, the, the video on TV, if they haven't already been tested themselves, of, uh, of the swab up your uh, the nostrils and, and they get a sample, et cetera, et cetera. Other jurisdictions are doing different things, though, and getting faster results. Is that something we should be aspiring to? You know, um, I was on a board call this morning uh, where the Public Health Ontario folks came on board. They're the ones who do uh, most of the testing in Ontario. Uh, And, you know, they're they're really really pointing out that that, uh, there's a global demand for this sort of equipment. And so the manufacturing are, are producing them as quickly as they can. And uh, they're in competition with, you know, governments around the world who are buying those in large quantities. So uh, I, I think that uh, we're going to get there in terms of capacity we need, but it's going to take a bit more time. We're kind of in the same conundrum where we were back in the springtime with the PPE, weren't we? We, the, we just didn't have enough to go around, and there were shortages, and, and you know, we were, everybody was scrambling for suppliers, and they were actually bidding against each other. Uh, it, but I guess what we're going to be looking for at some point, and it probably can't happen fast enough, is uh, for somebody up on this side of the border to start uh, developing these things. I mean, uh, there's, there's a market for them, clearly, but we're not there yet, so I guess we just have to be patient, don't we? It's absolutely this pandemic. Pandemic has pointed out the importance of having domestic capacity. We need to be able to, you know, produce, especially on the healthcare side, uh, the things that we need to serve our population and keep people healthy. Doctor, you've been mentioning to us, and we've talked to Dr. Richardson in the Hamilton area too, uh, about who should be tested. And I know in the early days they were saying anybody that wants a test should get a test. that's not necessarily the case because of the lineups. Uh, and I understand some people can be asymptomatic, but uh, is the message getting out there that if, you, if you're not feeling sick, if you don't have any symptoms, please don't stand in line because that's that place that somebody else who does have symptoms should be? You know, I think some people are definitely getting that message. And then there's also this paradox we see when we have scarcity. And we see this particularly, you know, when there's a, a shortage of flu vaccine, for example. Mm-hmm. As people hear that there's a shortage, they come and line up in droves because they don't want to be the ones <laughs> that don't get it. And so I think there's kind of uh, the message is being heard. And also there's like this competing human intuition that, oh, it's scarce. I should go get it for myself. So uh, so that definitely is challenging to try and shift behavior. The other thing is we've really learned over the last few months uh, that if you don't have symptoms, the chance that you have COVID-19 is extremely low. Uh, when we did the, the broad testing in long-term care, for example, at the time when outbreaks were going through long-term care, 
uh, we got only about two out of a thousand tests back positive. Two out of a thousand, so 0.2 percent uh, positive, and uh, and some of those we know were false positives because we retested, you know, the next day and they were negative, and the person never had symptoms, never had contact with anyone who had COVID-19. So, um, so the, 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 if you don't have symptoms. Uh, it would be, you know, it would be nice if we test, you know, if we could test everybody every day. We just don't have those level of resources. We never will. And if you don't have symptoms, you don't, you don't really need a test. Uh, one question. I, I got to let you go. I know you're a busy day today, but uh, this is a, a weekend that a lot of folks in the London area are looking at with a little trepidation because this is the uh, the FOCO weekend, the uh, the fake homecoming at Western University, uh, which has been a problem in the past for a lot of reasons: some property damage and noise and some crazy vandalism and stuff like that. They say all in good fun, but we're not supposed to be getting together in crowds. Uh, this, the indication seems to be it probably won't be as big as past years, but it probably is going to go in some way, shape, or form. Are you concerned about that? We're watching it very closely. I know the police uh, and EMS, uh, fire, and us have been working together to make sure that if there are hot spots that pop up, that we jump on top of that very quickly. I mean, FOCO wasn't just a property damage issue. We had, you know, uh, about a dozen overdoses because of opioids last year at FOCO. It's hardcore partying in a dangerous environment that is not safe uh, in any case. And when you introduce COVID into that, it's simply, you know, you can't imagine a better way to spread COVID than to put 10,000 young people, squish them all together in, you know, a tiny kind of partying space. Uh, that It's a really dangerous ingredient. And if FOCO goes forward this year, there's no doubt that it will generate a substantial increase in our Wave 2 activity. And it will, no doubt, harm people and likely kill people across the community. Well, we can only hope that uh, people are getting that message. And uh, as you say, the authorities are going to be watching uh, tomorrow to see just what develops. Uh, Good luck with that, Doctor. I hope things uh, turn out for you. And thanks again for taking some time for us. I really appreciate it. Thanks very much, Bill. Take care. Dr. Chris Mackey, of course, Medical Officers of Health for the London area, uh, worried about that FOCO situation. And we've talked about this on the program in the past as well. And I know folks in that end of town are very concerned about that because of some of the stuff that's gone on. Uh, and it's you know, there's, there's no excuse for it. I mean, it's while students being students. Yeah, but rowdy behavior. You know, we've had that in the other end of town, too, with Fanshawe a couple of years ago. Remember, there were fires, car fires and things like that. That's not partying. That's, that's vandalism, and it's dangerous. And it's dangerous to be assembling at all because of what's going on with COVID-19. Uh, in the uh, London area, and also we've already seen the spike in the London area. I don't think a bad situation worse, but we'll see what happens tomorrow. We'll certainly be checking into that uh, next week. Uh, wanted to bring uh, uh, some folks on from the Commonwealth Games Committee. As you know, Hamilton is bidding uh, for the Commonwealth Games, uh, and uh, they have been made, they are rather, making a, a series of presentations to Hamilton City Council to try to indicate to them exactly what's going to be happening with the bid process. And uh, we've talked with the Commonwealth Games Committee members. We've talked with uh, the International Commonwealth Games Committee uh, members about uh, Hamilton, and they seem very, very excited about having games here in Hamilton. P.J. Mercanti, uh, of course, from Carmen's Group, is uh, one of the folks in involved in this bid. He joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to bring us up to speed. Uh, PJ, thanks so much for joining us. Glad you could hop on today. Oh, thank you, Bill. Let's talk about the status of, of the bid so far. As to say, uh, uh, you know, they said they kind of wanted to get something done in, in the next couple of weeks. You got an extension. They said, let's just make sure that you got this all right. Where are you in the process right now, PJ? So in the last month to two months, Bill, we've been working hard as a, as a bid team in getting a lot of the financial uh, business case work done and and engaging with numerous stakeholders in the community around the affordable housing initiatives and other aspects of the bid. And and so next week we will be sharing uh, some more information with the public about the, the bid, 
And uh, with the goal of in the first or second week of October, I'm not uh, sure on the specific date, with a a goal of returning to council to provide uh, the city with uh, a more broad update on on where we're at. And, and, And we're excited because now we have a little bit more meat on the bones to share with council and with the, the public that I think they will be very pleased to hear. And a lot of it will be made public through a PricewaterhouseCoopers economic uh, impact study that was commissioned uh, that shows a lot of the tremendous benefits that this initiative would provide to the city. Now, I haven't seen the report, obviously, from Pricewaterhouse, so I look forward to reading it uh, after you make your presentation. Uh, but I do have the press release, of course, and uh, what this is going to provide for the city, I guess, PJ, is actually answers to some of the questions that councillors raised. Uh, the overriding question, I guess, or the theme from a lot of the questions, well, what's in it for Hamilton? And according to the, uh, the Pricewaterhouse report here, from the numbers that I saw in the press release anyway, uh, it's pretty significant, the, 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 the upside, the economic upside here. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and, and, you know, without spilling the beans, and, and a lot of these numbers have been publicly stated uh, in the past, but it's nice to see that they're now validated by a well-respected international uh, consulting and accounting firm. Uh, but the economic impact on the region would be in the $1 to $1.2 billion range. Uh, it would create 16,000 person years of employment, uh, and, and the study goes on to share a lot of other great insights, such as, you know, previous gains uh, in other cities have provided a 25% boost to local tourism, have accelerated urban regeneration efforts by 20 years. And so it demonstrates that the gains are a catalyst. And, and what's especially notable in this economic impact study is the impact to the municipal budget. And, and a few of the comments that PwC uh, have made uh, shares that the games will provide a net financial benefit to the city. Uh, it shares that there will, uh, the city won't be expecting to bear major legacy costs at some of the venues after the games, seeing that the private sector and a dedicated endowment fund will help the ongoing, uh, ongoing expenses, which was a concern of Councillor Collins, which, you know, was delighted to be able to, uh, to, you know, to you know, quell that uh, concern. And so we're excited to share how this is going to benefit the taxpayer, benefit the city. The, the report also speaks to how, uh, with, related, with uh, regards to gains capital investments, that this would reduce the need for the city to invest in some of these facilities, and in doing so, would drive further savings to council. So we're excited to share this. Uh, and uh, and really, you know, get get the city excited about what this could mean. What are the uh, the elements of this? Of course, that uh, I know a number of councillors raised. And I know it's it's addressed in the Price Waterhouse uh, report. Uh, is is affordable housing, and uh, that's a problem in this city. It's a problem in every city these days, sadly. And we've seen that uh, manifestation of that, of course, with the the tent encampments that we've seen. Uh, but there's an element to affordable housing that's in this thing. Maybe you could uh, expand on that. Oh, absolutely. And and the great thing is is that. Uh, the major legacy uh, and social impact benefit of our bid is that of housing and, and you know, using the Athletes' Village as a major affordable housing project and, and, and aligning with the Hamilton is Home housing initiative. And, and we're delighted that Indwell has, has joined the team and, and has been outstanding in terms of collaborating and lending their expertise uh, with regards to the housing plan, we've solicited the support of a few other, you know, very prominent community leaders that are very dialed in politically. Uh, Ted McMeekin and Nancy Gregorio have, have, you know, stepped up to assist us 
specifically with the housing and the social impact legacy initiative. And so we're making great headway uh, and developing some great momentum on the housing side. And, and we believe, Bill, that this could really, really put a dent into the affordable housing backlog in Hamilton. We're forecasting uh, a minimum of 3,000 units as part of an athlete's village. That would be, I think, a substantial legacy. And, and you know, there's a lot of other cities right now vying for federal and provincial dollars. Uh, and so by, by aligning with the Commonwealth Games, we as a community will be able to fast-track that process and go higher in terms of the pecking order. Um, you know, when you host the world on behalf of your country, you're able to access funds that, the regu- that other communities cannot access. And so this is an unprecedented opportunity to use the games to really accelerate Hamilton's uh, focus on developing affordable housing. And so, so we're delighted uh, with Indwell's amazing leadership. Uh, Lou Fraporty has also done a great job in terms of uh, enabling and collaborating with uh, key stakeholders around this initiative. So we're excited to share some significant updates with council and with the, with the public very soon. That's an interesting wrinkle to this. Uh, Indowell, of course, is in the news this week for a rather innovative approach to affordable housing uh, that they've just landed, and the city, I know, was ecstatic about that. Uh, Indowell must have been thrilled to, to actually understand and see some of the numbers that uh, Price Waterhouse are mentioning here. Uh, this is uh, this this is a catalyst, really, isn't it? It absolutely is, and 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 we're delighted too that there's been a lot of uh, federal support with regards to this uh, to this initiative. Uh, uh, federal uh, cabinet minister Philomena Tassi has been very supportive uh, and, and outstanding in terms of lending support and, and insight. Uh, you know, we're making great progress with the province of Ontario as well. And, and, and so we're, you know, delighted with some of the conversations that are happening there. And so we're really pleased with the momentum and the momentum in the last month or so that has been developing. And, and we truly believe that this can be a catalyst of a major form. Uh, you know, we think it's time that it's time for Hamilton to finally kick the defeatist mindset and parochial viewpoints that sometimes you know plague us, and and to embrace a major victory for once and put ourselves on the world stage, you know we're we're the ninth largest city in Canada. It's time for us to really embrace the you know you know the potential that is Hamilton, and we think that the Commonwealth Games are are a perfect way to do that. Uh, seeing that it's not it's not just about the two weeks of sport; it's about uh, investing in affordable housing and accelerating tourism and other de- economic development opportunities uh, born out of the games and in, in leaving a, a social impact footprint that will be felt for the next 100 years. So so we're excited with what's happening, with the fact that the team is growing and, the, and that there's real momentum, uh, momentum developing right now. PJ, I look forward to seeing the report uh, when it is published and uh, available to the public. Thanks so much for the update and uh, what's going on, and continue good luck with the, the great work with you and Lou and uh, Greg Maycheck and everybody else on the committee are involved in. We'll all stay in touch, okay? You, you got it. Thanks, Bill. PJ McCanny, of course, from the Carmen Group, and, of course, a member of the uh, Commonwealth Games bid team. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. An interesting twist on how we're dealing with the pandemic. Uh, after a, a, a great amount of scientific research, uh, it has been uh, discovered that people that watch horror movies are actually better able to cope with the pandemic. Now, this is a result of a very extensive study, uh, and I want to get some details on this because this is a fascinating read on this. Uh, Colton Scrivener is the lead author of this study. He's a Ph.D. student in Comparative Human Development Institute for Mind and Biology at University of Chicago, uh, and he joins us on the program to talk about this. Colton, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could be with us today. Hey, thanks for having me on. 
This is a fascinating study. I was just reading the overview of this uh, earlier this morning. Uh, and uh, talk to us about the protocol and exactly what what you went through with uh, with your study group here and how you came to this determination. Sure. So basically we had uh, about 300 or so uh, participants who uh, we gave some different surveys to. So we asked them, uh, you know, what are their favorite genres of film? Do they like horror? Do they like romance or comedy? Uh, and then we asked them how they were doing with the pandemic. So we asked them, are you feeling you know, more anxious or more depressed or you know, losing sleep? Did you feel prepared for the pandemic when it came? Uh, and then we asked them a little bit about uh, some other traits like uh, general personality, uh, morbid curiosity. And when we looked at the data, what we found was that uh, people who are fans of horror films uh, seem to be experiencing less psychological distress during the pandemic. And, and you know something, as, as I read through some of the results here and some of the uh, conclusions you drew here, it makes sense. I mean, I, I, from what you were saying in the report here, uh, that I guess the, 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 the impact that those kinds of movies have on us as individuals, uh, where we get stressed out watching the movie, would be, better prepare us for something in real life that's stressing us out. That's right. It's kind of like, uh, like the title uh, suggests, it's a little bit of practice, right? So we're sort of practicing... Uh, learning how to be afraid or feel anxious and how to overcome that uh, better. So, uh, This is, by the way, I should mention to our listeners, a very extensive study done at your university, University of Chicago, but also at uh, Penn State University and uh, Aris University in Denmark uh, with 310 uh, participants that were involved in this. One of the other things that you used to try to make these determinations, though, that I wanted you to explain to our listeners, uh, and it, it's called the Morbid Curiosity Scale, which is uh, something that you actually uh, determined, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. So it, what it essentially measures is uh, sort of an implicit interest or curiosity about uh, things that might be threatening or things that might lead to death. Um, and so what we found with that was that people who scored higher in morbid curiosity, so had a, a greater interest in these kinds of things, uh, were experiencing greater positive resilience. And so this means that they uh, were essentially finding ways to enjoy life during the pandemic. So they might still be a little stressed, but they're kind of finding ways to enjoy things. Does it does it make us numb when we see these movies? Or uh, you know, there's a whole genre, of course, of horror movies that can go in, you know, zombie apocalypse to to right. any a number of different things like that too. Uh, and as much as we get frightened or maybe jump up out of our seats when we're watching it, I guess there's a little part at the back of our mind that's saying, "Yeah, but you're safe. Don't worry." Right. Yeah. I don't know if it makes us numb. I mean, our study didn't really look at that, but I would think maybe. Uh... If anything, it just makes us learn, it helps us learn how to kind of overcome those feelings of fear, those feelings of anxiety, more so than maybe making us numb to them. Well, and it also, as you've indicated in the study here, it almost kind of gives us a game plan. Uh, you mentioned that you know, yeah. the people that watch these shows all the time, whether it's, you know, Zombieland or something like that, uh, when the pandemic started to hit and, and, and a lot of the, the economy got shut down, uh, they knew how to react because they've seen this, this a very similar thing in some of the movies they've watched. Yeah, so that was another one of the main findings was that people who watched this uh, series of genres that we called prepper genres, so these are things like zombie films or apocalyptic films, sort of end-of-the-world films, mm -hmm. uh, they reported that they were feeling sort of more prepared when the pandemic was announced. They sort of knew what to buy. They, uh, it didn't catch them by surprise too much. Um, so, yeah, maybe a kind of specific practice even in some cases. So what, what do you draw from this? Uh, as, as you saw this and as you saw the results, uh, the story I read about this says you weren't really surprised by the results because, uh, as, as I say, once you start looking at this and start connecting to the dots, it, it makes all sorts of logical sense. But what's your takeaway from what you learned? I think, um, you know, there's still a lot more research that we're hoping to do on this. But the, the takeaway is that, you know, it, it might not be such a 
fear or anxiety may not be such a bad thing all the time, right? Especially if you can kind of uh, do it in small doses or in safe doses, like you would say, like during Halloween at a haunted house or a horror movie. You can kind of learn how to how to cope with those feelings of, of dread or anxiety. Well, it's it's fascinating study. And uh, is, is there a, a place, a, a web page they can go to to get some more details about this? Uh, sure. My website has some more details on it. Um, it's just coltonscrivener.com, uh, and it'll link you to the full study and some other uh, reports on the on the study as well. It's it's a fascinating read, really, and I I really want to take some time to to explain this to our listeners. And thank you for. I know it's a busy day for you. Thanks for taking some time with us today. It's a pleasure talking with you, Colton. Yeah, no problem. It's a fun. Thanks. Take care. Colton Scrivener, of course, uh, from University of Chicago. Uh, horror movies, that's the trick if you want to learn how to do it. And it, it, like I say, when you think about it logically, uh, we get frightened, but we know how to deal with it. So when something in real life starts to threaten us, you can manage, I guess, uh, the stress level. At least that's what the uh, study seems to indicate anyway. Uh, not much stress going on with the uh, Toronto Blue Jay fans for the first time since uh, 2016. Uh, they're going to the playoffs. Scott Radley, of course, hosted the Scott Radley Show on CHML every weeknight evening, and columnist in the Hamilton Spectator joins us. So, Scotty, thanks so much for the time. Glad to talk with you again. You too, Bill. How are things? How do you How do you like the those the, the Buffalo Blue Jays? What a year they've had. <laughs> you know, let me ask you a question, Bill. Sure. 2015, when uh, they sort of returned to relevance after about 20 years of being very mediocre or worse, every single person that you talked to could not get enough of the Blue Jays. Every day after the game, you would talk to people about the game, and you never had to say what game. You just knew what game it was. 2016, maybe not quite as much, but similar. Have you heard any of that same buzz this year? No, not at all. It's a, it's a tricky one because, yeah, the Jays are in. And, you know, good for them. They, you know, they made the playoffs. I mean, look, they've expanded the playoffs, so maybe that takes a little of the zing out and not playing in front of fans and not playing at home. But I, it, there just seems to be a piece of this missing, and that's the real excitement about this. And maybe when they get in the playoffs, maybe it'll come. But uh, it, it, just, it seems like it's just been a hard thing to try to really – find that same juice around this team and and it's unfortunate because they're a good team they're an exciting team they're a young team they're on their way up um but there's just it just seems as though some of that excitement that we had four or five years ago doesn't seem to be there well and you're right geography may be part of that they're not playing in toronto um and uh you know there's an alienation i guess with some fans and uh and i i share the same concern you do i you know i love baseball uh even the this is a terrible year for the red sox uh but the, i i really have trouble watching these games and and you know the same thing in hockey and basketball you're right you're playing in front of empty stadium for, for the most part and it's not just that there's just something about it it's almost surreal that i, I just can't get into it maybe maybe the you know the, the fans in the stands are part of that experience i don't know but i i've just had real trouble and your point's well taken this is an exciting ball club to watch i i don't think a whole lot of fans know a lot of the guys on the team except well the kitty core of course the really the foundation for that club right now those young guys that are playing so well for them but you know can you name a starting pitcher can you name uh, the you know who's their who's their go-to guy in the bullpen i, I don't think fans are paying that much attention to them this year no and it does say something about the fans in the stands and the what that brings i think to the the broadcast we don't think of fans as being really part of the broadcast but just the 
if there's excitement, you know, we were our family was watching an episode. Um, probably not proud to say this, but we were watching an episode of America's Got Talent the other day, and there was nobody in the crowd, and you've got a stand-up comedian, and you realize, my goodness, that being a stand-up comedian is a vastly different proposition when there's no one to laugh. <laughs> you're, you're basically trying to entertain a TV audience that gives you no feedback, and we were saying, like, it's a really hard thing. Well, it's not quite the same. But being a professional athlete, being a baseball team, when you're rallying, when something big is happening and there's not that explosion of noise. And, I mean, how different would Bautista's home run in 2015 have been if there had been nobody in the building that night? And all that stuff leading up to it and the beer cans flying on the field and the booing and the screaming and the rally. How different would that thing have felt to us if there had been nobody there? And I think the answer is we would have still been excited Blue Jay fans about the home run, but I don't think it would feel anything like it did with that, with the emotion and everything that was in the building. And so it, it is translating. I mean, the last numbers that I saw were, uh, you know, numbers in the 400 to 450,000 range for TV numbers for Blue Jay, for a Blue Jays game. That's not terrible. That's, that's, that's absolutely not terrible, but back in 2015 and 2016 when they were down the stretch drive and they were competing for a playoff spot. Remember, they were going well over a million fans yeah. on TV those nights. So, you know, the two, the 450,000, that's the number that you, the Jays get anytime. Even if they're the worst team in the league, those are roughly the TV numbers that they get in April when the season starts. Those are the diehard, diehard, diehard fans, which tells me that you, this team just hasn't really, they've got the diehards who are on board, but they haven't really clicked as far as getting the casual fans who make up the base when things go really well in the past. They, to me, it would look like they're not there right now. The other element to this, too, if you to extend that comparison between now and 2015, uh, there were personalities on that team that, that I think the fans could relate to. I mean, obviously, Joey Bats and, and the bat flip and everything, but he he was a fan favorite to begin with, always was as a Blue Jay. You had Edward Encarnacion, you had Russell yep. Martin, hey, the Canadian guy playing catcher. Yep. This is great. Yeah, and you know, you go through that team, and there were there was there were some personalities there that I think that the fans could grab onto, and it's it's. I don't think the fans know the personalities on this team. They know they're talented, certainly. When you look at guys like you know Biggio and Bichette and people like that, those uh-huh. are outstanding ball players. But I don't know that people have got to know them the way that they got to know those other guys, and but and, and maybe that's got to be part of it. It is, because it's a cycle thing, because why am I watching? I'm not watching on TV because it doesn't seem as exciting, perhaps, or because the season doesn't seem legitimate when it's only 60 games or whatever. So I'm not watching on TV, so I don't then know these guys. Because I don't know them, I don't care as much about them, and because I don't care as much about them, I'm not going to watch them. And so, as I say, you get this cycle. I don't think that, for the record, I don't think baseball is dead. I don't think that there is a long-term impact from this. I think that next year... COVID sorts itself out or things happen and we can go back to having a normal baseball season and you have a young, good team that is doing well and you've got a team that's contending next year, I think you would probably be right back to where things were in 2015. But there's just so many pieces of this season that seem so weird. And let's not forget the one other thing about this. Usually, Bill, most summers, what is baseball competing against for the sports fans eyeballs 
well, the CFL, but that's mostly on Friday night. So, but you know, through the week and on weekends, it's baseball. You turn yeah. in, and baseball is on four or five of the Sportsnet channels, and you want to watch a sporting event, you're probably watching the Jays. Now you've got the NBA Finals and through the playoffs going on. You've got the Stanley Cup playoffs now in the finals that's going on. You've had golf jamming its season with the FedEx Cup Final and the U.S. Open and all this. Like all these things are competing as well. And that, that, that's got to factor into it as well. That, you know, sports fans will find sports. If you love sports, most people that, you know, you get a hankering, I got to watch something competitive, even if you're not necessarily a huge baseball fan. If there's a good team and it's on and there's nothing else to watch, you'll watch and you'll get caught up in it and you'll become excited and then whatever. It's a way tougher market to crack right now with all the competition. Well, I don't know. There's, like you say, there's something to be said for, you know, fans on the stands. And I know that, you know, they have the cardboard cutouts and stuff like that. But, but you're, you're looking for some other things, too, that I think create the atmosphere. I mean, you know, where's the guy with the, the John 316 song? I mean, come on. You know, they, <laughs> these are the things. At all? I, I don't know where he is now. Uh, but he I used to be. Yeah. Every, there was always a guy <laughs> like that, you know. Uh, and, and I'm missing that. And, and the other thing, too, and I noticed this when I was watching the hockey playoffs, such as they are this year, uh, it's all well and good to say, okay, we're going to pipe in fans' noise so it sounds like it's the real thing. But you can still hear too much on the ice. You can hear the skates swishing along the ice. You can hear the puck, you know, slapping off sticks. Same thing with the – you can hear the crack of the bat. Uh, and it's just – it sounds empty. And it just it, it just seems different. And I, I, I'm having trouble getting used to that. Baseball is um, – it's like it's like every sport is has its fan purpose. Every sport besides just selling tickets, which, of course, is financial. But – um, I mean, baseball is unique in that it's because of the pacing of the game. The fans like football. The NFL, I would say, would be another one, or the CFL would be another example where fans are significant to the actual going on of the game. In baseball, you get two strikes on a batter. The fans are up. They're engaged. They're, they're screaming and yelling. Something happens. The team rallies. Fans are very much engaged. You really notice them. With hockey and basketball, they're a big deal, but you notice them, I think, a little bit less because the din is going on for the most part of the game. I mean, yeah, there's a big explosion if they score or if there's a big hit or something, but there's noise constantly and throughout, so it's part of the background. Whereas, as I say, football, um, baseball, there are certain moments when the crowd really is noticeable and really is impactful, and now you've taken that away as you just pointed out, I think we start to really notice what we didn't really know was such a big deal. We still, when it's when it's gone, you go, wait, that that that's actually a very big part of the experience of watching this, and we didn't even realize it. Yeah, I mean, you know, the only sport that really seems to have compensated properly is golf, and that's good. But they usually don't have fans on the fairways anyway. I mean, yeah, on the greens they will, Something's and, that, gone and that's gone. wrong if there's fans on the greens, Bill. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Listen, we got to scoot. Uh, thanks so much for the time. I, I hope they do well. I really do. I mean, you know, it would be kind of nice to, to have, you know, that kind of experience, playoff experience under the belt, so if they're going to play regular baseball during regular time next year. Scott Radley, you can hear him every uh, weeknight on 900 CHML, and, of course, read his uh, powerful prose in the Hamilton Spectator. Have a great weekend, Scott. You too, Bill. Thanks. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free.
so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.